This episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Go to helixsleep.com slash weeds and get $50 off your order. And by Squarespace. Use offer code weeds at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. We, you figured we, this we, out. We, we know what The Weeds is now. <laughs> this is a podcast for somebody Square. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Ezra Klein is back from vacation. I am back. He is looking very tan. I have a beard. Got a bit of a beard. Yeah, I mean, not a full beard. But that's like a vacation beard it's you got vacation going on. He's, he's tanned, rested, and ready. Sarah is not as rested, but also ready to podcast. Still ready to podcast. Ready and, for a CBO score. And ready to tell us about the booming labor market of the Trump era. Yes, that, there's some job creation happening here at Vox.com. We are looking for a editor for a three-month position with Weeds in the Wild, our spin-off podcast on how policy affects real people. And you can learn more details about that position if you go to VoxMedia.com slash careers, look for the audio editor position. And Where, What's that URL again? VoxMedia.com slash careers. Oh, good. I'll remember it now. Yes. Um, if you would like to, if you're bored of your editor-in-chief job, Ezra. I am pretty bored of my editor-in-chief in job. Audio editing. Or if you Weeds listeners are interested, I'm sure there are some audio fanatics out there who would be a great fit for this. So, um, Look that up if you are interested. Uh, you also might want to check out uh, the latest episode of uh, Todd Vanderwerf's podcast. I think you're interesting. I'm very excited for this one. Yeah, his his guest this week is is Alan Yang. He's the uh, co creator of um, Master of None with Aziz Ansari. He was a writer for Parks and Recreation, uh, the Humor Magazine. He wrote for in college was fucking hilarious. Uh, he's like <laughs> you really uh, know Alan Yang's career. Uh, well, yeah, we were in college at the same time. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what was he? Was it the National Lampoon or was it another one? But the, the Harvard Lampoon. The Harvard yeah. Lampoon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, it's not called the National Lampoon? No, that's a different thing. Okay. Anyway, brilliant guy, hilarious guy. I'm really looking forward to hearing his interview with Todd. Um, it's a great show, Master of None, if you haven't seen it. Uh, Second season was great. I binge watched it this but weekend. What, what we want you to do is download I Think You're Interesting. Yes. Before the Masters have done things. Yes. yes. You want that as context. One Masters way or the other. <laughs> anyway, I mean, you should listen to this show. You should watch his show. But you should definitely download Todd's show. Uh, it's great. Great interview show. Great guest. I'm looking forward to it. But what are I'm, we talking about today? I'm looking forward to this episode of The Weeds. We got some feedback from the Facebook group. People were looking for a little more wonk, a little less, you know, espionage scandal kind of stuff um so we're we're here to deliver that for you we've got a white paper one of my favorite white papers it came out on my birthday it was a, a great oh, present what a for birthday me. present it was amazing um we're going to talk about auto enrollment in health insurance uh which is a, a fascinating subject and we're going to start off by talking about president trump's budget proposal which came out this week while president trump was in saudi arabia and seems to be very much the brainchild of his budget director, uh, Mick Mulvaney. And it is a, it's really like a horrifying document from, from top to bottom. And there's sort of two ways you can, you can look at this and, and different things attract different pieces of attention. Uh, budget releases usually get assigned to kind of budget wonk journalists to cover in the first place. So we got a lot of coverage initially of the fact that there's this like, Two trillion dollar double counting problem in the budget, which budgety people are are very focused on, and it's really sort of embarrassing. And the 
White Can House. Can you walk through that a little bit? Because yeah. I do understand, like, what actually is going on with the double count thing? I think there's a few different possible interpretations of what's happening. But long story short, the budget balances, allegedly, at the end of the 10-year window. And one of the reasons it balances at the end of the 10-year window is that they claim the policy measures that they are adopting, including their tax reform plan, will increase growth enough to generate $2 trillion in extra revenue. Um, so then you look, you're like, well, what's this magical growth-creating tax plan? And it says nothing. It just says there's a deficit-neutral tax reform plan. Um, but then there's been this completely separate dialogue about the tax reform plan happening in Washington, where Gary Cohn from the National Economic Council, Steve Mnuchin from Treasury, have been saying that the tax plan will be paid for in part through assuming that the tax cuts increase growth, right? So it's the growth is being counted twice. So in the first place, it's making the tax cut revenue neutral, but then the revenue neutral tax reform is generating all this extra growth. Right. So to put it another way, as I understand it, because I want to make sure I, I get this because I was on uh, – I just got back from vacation <laughs> and I feel very confused by everything. What they have is a tax cut that if you just do the math, doesn't add up. So they said, oh, no, don't worry. The growth is going to be there. Then they gave us a budget that if you just do the math, it doesn't add up. And then they said, oh, no, the growth from the tax cut is going to make it add up. So they just have put in – the growth from the tax cut, which might itself not happen. I have a lot of issues about how they're counting this sort of magic tax cut growth. So, like, it is a math error built on top of a fantastical assumption that might never happen. Yeah, I mean, the the, the growth projections themselves are ridiculous, to be honest. Um, and, and there's no way any of this is going to happen. But even if it did, they're counting it twice. Um, and so there's different... They've come up with some different versions of explanation for this. There's a, Steve Mnuchin said in a uh, interview with John Harwood when he was like faced with this, he just said, "Oh, this is a preliminary document. Right. I don't believe there's any." I mean that that I thought gave away the game. There's no explanation. They're not good at doing this. Well, it, <laughs> like as a, as a making process like matter, any of this. it just seems like what happened is that Mulvaney was tasked with the budget, and another group of people were tasked with the tax plan, and it's more convenient for both groups of people to claim the magic growth beans. So they just both did. And nobody cares because they don't, I mean, on a deep and fundamental level, like nobody in this operation actually cares. I do want to say there's a whole like other way of looking at this budget, which is there's a story in the New York Times about how public health experts believe that the cuts to international public health programs that are included in this budget will lead to the deaths of a million people in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, the budget also cuts Medicaid by 50 percent. It cuts about $71 billion out of disability insurance. Um, so – we're talking about massive food stamp cuts. Yeah, whether you're looking at the domestic poor uh, or the global poor, the global poor being poorer, the the harm is is even more palpable. But terrifying sort of humanitarian consequences of this budget, and it really funds nothing. I mean, it it maintains Medicare. It doesn't cut. Social Security retirement benefits. It increases defense spending. Some, but uh, honestly, not that much. But in Social Security, it's cutting disability, It cuts the right? disability payments. Yeah, it keeps the retirement benefits. It, but they're cutting taxes a lot in the context of a country 
whose population is aging, right? I mean, I get emails sometimes from conservatives They're like, how can you say they're cutting something when the number is going up? And and the reason is that the share of the population that is elderly and therefore eligible for Medicare benefits is rising steadily over time. And also the cost of providing health care to a single elderly person is rising over time. So if you maintain the structure of the program where all elderly people get their medical bills covered, that is a, a growing wedge o- over time, which I think is fine. This like you can't go back in time and change the demographic structure. But it means that if you keep that constant and you cut taxes a lot, and you increase military spending even a little, you've got to like demolish everything else. And that's what this budget does. Like there's no one trillion dollar infrastructure program. Instead, they're cutting infrastructure. Um, Trump on the campaign trail said that to really fix poverty in America, what we needed was this like big voucher program. And, you know, did we need that? Who knows? But, but that's what Trump said we needed to, to solve poverty. What's actually in this budget is like a tiny, pilot program because there's no $20 billion to spend on a voucher program or on anything. Um, nutrition is cut. Uh, lead abatement programs that Ben Carson said were valuable and he wouldn't cut. They're getting cut. Uh, everything. Everything is cut. And in a weird way, you know, one of the things we saw during the campaign was candidate Trump trying to position himself as like very different from the rest of establishments. There's this interview he gave really early um in the campaign, maybe even before he announced, where he said, you know, if I ever run for president, I'm never going to cut Medicaid. And, you know, he made a point of saying, you know, I'm not like other Republicans. It's just not a program I'll cut. And one of the things we see happen in this budget is he actually goes well beyond even where, like, conservative status quo is on how much we should cut Medicaid. Like, this is Medicaid cuts far deeper than I've seen any other conservatives um, propose. And so it's not just that he is it's not like he's taken up like the the party line and said, you know, we're going to cut Medicaid, but he's really like taken up the party line and like put it on on steroids at this point, you know, suggesting nearly a 50 percent cut to the program and really going 100 percent away from, you know, that idea that he raised, you know, even on, you know, Obamacare, too. He said, I'd cover everybody. And then we're going to get a CBO report later today that will certainly say he is not going to cover everybody not cut Medicaid, the biggest Medicaid we've cuts we've seen proposed in a budget. And, you know, there's kind of two ways I think about this budget document. One is, you know, it's not really going anywhere in Congress. It's not like this is the point where Congress takes it up and debates it. Um, you know, there's a political reporter, Burgess Everett, who had a tweet about reporting yesterday where he said he would go up to um, senators and say, is this dead on arrival? And they'd say, yes. And he's like, can you just say dead on arrival for my story? Uh, because that's kind of how this is received. But at the same time, it is a statement of, of values and kind of like what the administration prioritizes. So even though it's not a document that will kind of move forward on Capitol Hill, it does seem important because it tells us kind of what the White House stands for. And what it stands for is very different than the things that Trump said he stood for. Just to jump in on that real quick. It's funny. Yes, it does tell us what the White House stands for. There's a a line from Joe Biden where he says that, don't tell me what you stand for. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what you stand for, which is true. Like budgets are where the choices actually get made. And, And what you see here is that Donald Trump, I mean, you look at this budget and as far as I can tell, Donald Trump 
does not know what's in it, had nothing to do with it, does not care. It breaks virtually every promise he's made. It cuts Social Security when he said he wouldn't do that. It cuts Medicaid when he said he wouldn't do it. And it also just violates what Donald Trump said about his own relationship with the poor. It doesn't include the voucher program that he said is what he's going to do to solve poverty. There is just nothing in the way Donald Trump presented himself and the economic populism he said that he had and he said that he represented, which survives in this budget. Now, what appears to have happened is that Donald Trump, who genuinely doesn't care, like I think we're seeing in this sort of uh, Donald Trump is currently, I guess, flying back from his his big trip uh, through the Middle East after, you know, touching orbs and leaving weird no, he's, notes. He's, he's going to Belgium. Oh, he's going to Belgium. Yeah. OK. Um, and Donald Trump would enjoy being a ceremonial head of state. He's not that bad at that job. I don't think he's great at it, but he's not that bad at it. Uh, and he likes sort of getting clapped and he enjoys getting big medals from, you know, like Saudi Arabia. Uh, he's not good at being president. He's not, he's not enjoy the details of this. So he outsources them. And what he got in Mulvaney was somebody who was nothing like Donald Trump. He was a member of the Tea Party. He was a very conservative member of the House. He represented a wing of the Republican Party that Donald Trump beat in the Republican primary. But then Donald Trump just put that wing of the party into his budget director role. And now you get this budget. The thing that I think is is interesting about this in a sort of a long-term sense of what it means for Trumpism, one of the really big problems of Trumpism is that nobody is creating a coherent version of it. Donald Trump doesn't care to create it. Steve Bannon either doesn't care or doesn't have the power to create it. And nobody else in the administration, as far as we can tell, even believes in it. Not in a holistic way. There are individual people who don't like immigrants or there are individual people who feel this or that way about a program. But this administration does not have anybody who wants to create an ideologically rigorous policy agenda around Trumpism. It is a huge problem. Now, when you have an economic populace, like the, the way this tends to work in other countries is that you have this sort of socially nationalist uh, economic populist candidate run. And what they typically do is they say, as Trump did in the campaign, hey, look, a huge problem is that we've had all these people coming in from outside of our borders, or we have all these people here who don't represent who we are as a country. They've been sucking up all the benefits, and here I'm running, and I'm going to give them less, or I'm going to keep them out, and I'm going to – and this is really important – give you more. Like that was the Trump message. I am not going to cut Medicare. I'm not going to cut Social Security. You are going to get more from me uh, because you deserve it, because you've been getting screwed all these years. That's how we're going to make America great again. We're going to make a government that works for you, the true Americans. And Donald Trump is not doing that. He is not creating the goods. He is he is not giving anybody except for the very rich anything. He is just taking things away from people. That is not a smart strategy. It's not something that will make him more popular if any of this ever passed. He's polling beneath 40% now. It's not going to win him any new friends, particularly when people begin feeling the effect of these cuts. But it's really not the theory on which he ran. Like He ran as an economic populist who is going to blow up the Republican Party's uh, consensus where it sort of went to small government because it's putting together rich people who wanted lower taxes and folks who felt that the government was helping the wrong people. And he said, fuck the rich people. I'm going to make sure the government helps you. He said, I'm going to raise taxes on the rich. I'm not going to hurt your programs. In fact, he just has alienated more people. He's adding small government conservatism to nationalism and to some degree xenophobia. And I don't see that as a winning political play. Learning something new is it's just it's one of the great 
pleasures in life. Um, I, I really enjoy it. And with the Great Courses Plus, I get unlimited access to learn about anything I want. You got history, economics, psychology, how to play chess, how to take better pictures, um, you know, fun stuff, interesting stuff, uh, things that'll make you smarter, things that'll make you better. It's a huge library. They've got over 8,000 lectures presented by award-winning experts. You can stream these courses from any smartphone, tablet, laptop, or any TV, or you can download the videos and watch them offline. Um, so a brand new course uh, that I really recommend is America's Founding Fathers. This has been created in partnership with the Smithsonian uh, Great Museum. It's an engaging course, and it talks about the nation's beginnings and, and what the founders were really about, you know, that they were interested in liberty and different ideas of what liberty meant. Um, they show, for example, that, you know, Aaron Burr's assassination of Alexander Hamilton, it, it really highlights how the Constitution wants to protect the liberties, even of the people who, who meant to bring it harm, that, that this idea of liberty was sort of, it was new to the political world at the time of the 18th century, but it was really fundamental and foundational to what the founders cared about. Um, so if you sign up for The Great Courses Plus as a listener of the weeds, you can watch this or any of their courses for free for one month by using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Get your free month. You're going to love it. Sign up today at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. This budget is like crazy in many ways, but there's no like other way to make it work. Like on the one hand, Trump is violating a lot of the either explicit promises he made or sort of implicit commitments that he made. On the other hand, it's very much this is an exercise that was dumped in Mulvaney's lap with the constraints that, you know, he couldn't touch Medicare. He wasn't supposed to touch Social Security. He like talked Trump into the idea that SSDI is not really Social Security or something, got permission to cut that. But like Republicans on the Hill are saying, well, this is dead on arrival there. But Republicans on the Hill agree that taxes should be cut and they agree that military spending should go up. So this is what happens. You know, now you could squeeze the balloon differently. You could go more in a Ryan budget direction and cut spending on basic government operations a little bit less and cut spending on uh, elderly people's health care um, considerably more. I don't know that that would be any more of a popular option. Like the whole sticking point on this whole thing is the insistence that as America ages and as the government continues to be responsible for a large share of healthcare finance, that we are going to keep taxes low and even make them lower. Like that's a, that's a crazy idea. Like there's no, there's no way to do that. I mean, I, I hate some of these kind of analogies, but like when you think about any kind of system, it's like if there are commitments you have made and the cost of making those commitments is going to go up in the future very predictably and like we've known for decades that this baby boom contours is happening you need more money not less money and i don't know you know i mean you you see a fascinating thing it's like you can win elections apparently time and again by like saying that you have some magic way to make this all work out uh, but they don't like they don't have a magic way to make it work out donald trump doesn't have a magic way to make it work out paul ryan doesn't have a magic way to make it work out and mitch mcconnell doesn't have one either and they keep coming up with sort of rhetorical stratagems to like get around this You've seen a lot of this in, in the healthcare debate too. There's like a lot of emphasis being placed on 
trying to avoid directly taking the hit for yanking benefits out from under people other than the very poor. But there's just like, there's no, there's no way to make it happen. And at some point, either something like this budget is going to happen to America, uh, or else Republicans are going to have to change their bedrock ideological principles. Because I think we've seen that like, large swaths of the American people just aren't going to go like vote for Democrats and say, oh, I love, you know, big city elitists with their lesbian abortions and, and you know, no guns or, or whatever. They're just like they're committed to electing Republicans. They want Republicans to do something different from Republican budgeting. But Republicans so far, you know, they're not budging on that. But I think there's also like an openness to dealing with. So a lot of this is framed. I was just back in um, Kentucky the last few days in the same area where I was um, earlier this year talking about two Obamacare enrollees who voted for Trump. And one of the things like that totally speaks to the point you were making. People understood, you know, the Obamacare enrollees I talked to, they understood that like that bill would not be good for them, like that they would lose out. But at the end of the day, it was kind of like, well, I'm a Republican and I vote Republican. And like, at the end of the day, you know, the trade-offs are like the Republicans are the party that represents me and maybe I get screwed on this deal. But like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like I think that is the type of person who should represent this area, which was kind of like an interesting wake-up call. But obviously, like, I don't think this area in southeastern Kentucky, which is like, like, this is not like a like swing district. This is an area that, you know, I just looked up yesterday has had a Republican congressperson since 1963. The last time a Democrat ran against him, he got 22% of the vote. So this is not like an area that is contested. But it's interesting to understand why it is not contested, even with these policies. I would say I don't I mean, I think there is a growing openness in the Republican Party, and you see this with the sway that the Freedom Caucus has to, you know, not holding to the commitments that we've had in the past. Like the Freedom Caucus, you know, I will say they are nothing if not honest about like what it is that they want to do. And they are okay with fewer people having health insurance. I don't think it's something Paul Ryan wants to talk about. You know, he wants to talk about everyone having access to health care, but you do have this kind of growing and more influential wing of the Republican Party that that is more okay with saying, like, yes, there are trade-offs and, like, we're on one side of that trade-off. I have a bunch of thoughts on this. One is that your point about the the very Republican districts is true, right? Even in a wave election, what is salient about almost every congressional election ever is that virtually every incumbent gets reelected. Like, even when you have a wave election and out of 435 seats, like 40 flip, that means the others didn't, right? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of seats in a moment in American politics that's pretty extreme enough to create a wave did not flip. So for the most part, just people don't change their minds. Weeds listeners should ask themselves how often they've changed their minds about like the fundamental questions of American politics. The answer is probably not that often. Uh, so uh, everything you're saying there is true. That said, there's a pretty interesting piece uh, on, on Vox from Jeff Stein yesterday, I think it was. And he's been paying pretty close attention to the Montana and Georgia special elections, right? Georgia. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing in polling right now really, really, really big shifts. It doesn't mean the Democrats are going to win either seat. But both seats were – the Georgia seat, I believe, was won by the Republican by 21 or 27 points. But the guy the Democrats ran against Tom Price in that seat turns out to literally not exist. <laughs> oh, really? Wait, yeah, really? It a, yeah, it was a fake. But wasn't it a couple of years back that like <laughs> – Well, it was – no, so the, the reason this became a target is that um, – Trump only won the district very right. narrowly. Trump won it narrowly. But um, 
the the republic in the district had won it by quite yeah, a lot he- previously yes. and similarly in this montana seat it's not been a close race there either and now we're seeing polling saying that the democrat in georgia is up a little bit again it's only a little bit he could still lose uh montana again the polling we're seeing is suggesting a much much closer race than people had thought and what what stein said was that if you go and look at what the democrats are saying in these races they are not running against trump on russia they are not running against trump on corruption or trump on espionage or trump on michael flynn they are running against a republican health care bill they are running against a republican budget they are running against ryanism I, I hear what you're saying, Matt, about that there isn't an answer to this sort of dilemma Republicans have created. But one of the things that I think is important about that is that this dilemma they've created, this budget dilemma they've created, is an incredibly unpopular policy. Like, they, they really don't have a popular answer. So what they had was Trump ran and said, I do not agree, right? Like, I right. literally just disagree. And Trump had no record. He had not voted for the Ryan budget in the past. He did not – had not written his own budgets. So people are like, yeah, maybe this guy disagrees. If you marry the unpopular parts of Trumpism to the unpopular parts of the Republican agenda, that, that's a really bad place to be in. I also just don't want to to forget – like. When you listen to Donald Trump or the members of his administration or even Republicans in Congress talk about this kind of budget, there is such a breathtaking disengagement from the people who will be hurt. Like, as you say, when you hear Paul Ryan talk about the Republican health care bill, he wants to talk about universal access, which his bill also does not do, not even close. Like, it is not access to not be able to afford health insurance, but he does not want to say I just think it would be better if we had more uninsured people, but the government put that money instead to cutting taxes to rich people, right? Like, I'm just cool with that. Um, And similarly, Donald Trump and Mick Mulvaney and all these people will not come out and say, they just will not say, they will not face up at all to the human cost of what they are attempting to do here. And there's just something really awful about that. I mean, okay, like you want to, make these cuts you think you have a a reason to do it fine but we we're not even getting that reason because they're not even making whatever the real argument is here right there are people who believe philosophically the government should just be smaller philosophically there's not what the government should be doing there are people who have i think very bank shot theories about economic growth and other things which you see a little bit of that in the budget but not in a way that would help these people on food stamps you're just not hearing i i have been watching this discourse, and you're not even hearing the positive case for this budget. It is just a mashup of like extreme cuts that they don't haven't thought through mathematics mistakes. And then in a thing that I think is particularly fucking galling, Ivanka Trump's child care proposal. So a mashup of like really, really, really hurting poor people, really not taking just like the basic rules of budgeting and economics and math seriously. But then the president's eldest child has an idiosyncratic interest in a relatively regressive plan to help working women afford childcare, which in the context of a another kind of budget is fine. But because she's into it, that's in there too for $2 billion. And like, there's something about all of that put together. It's just like, ugh. Like, you're not taking, like, these are people's lives and you're not taking it even remotely seriously. 
different people are different. I'm different. You're different. Uh, we don't like all try to squeeze into one pair of pants or something. It would be ridiculous. Uh, but so much of the mattress world works like that because up until now, a truly customized mattress has cost like five or ten thousand dollars, and nobody has that money. Um, so Helix Sleep is the answer. You go to HelixSleep.com. You answer a few simple questions. They create a big uh, a biomechanical model of your body. It's called. Uh, they've got proprietary algorithms. They have leading experts in ergonomics and biomechanics, and they're going to develop a mattress that is right for you. Uh, if you're in a couple, uh, they can even make a mattress that's different on the different sides so that you and your partner uh, each get exactly what you need. Uh, it's going to get you a better sleep. They're so confident in the fact that your sleep is going to be better that they will give it to you for 100 nights to check it out. If you don't love it, they'll take it away for free and give you a 100% refund, no questions asked. They just really think that if you go to their website, you do their questionnaire, you order their mattress, that you are going to be really enthusiastic about it. Uh, so you just go to helixsleep.com slash weeds. You get $50 off from your order. That's helixsleep.com slash weeds, helixsleep.com slash weeds. Speaking of serious, how about auto-enrollment in healthcare plans? Yeah. Sarah? An idea that is getting even more serious An idea whose time has come. <laughs> by the day. Um, so this is this idea that I was honestly a little bit surprised when I heard it was kicking around in Republican circles. It's something that um, has come up on the op-ed pages of the Wall Street Journal recently. It's a topic that's in conversation in the Senate Working Group on Healthcare. And basically the idea is um, that the government should automatically enroll anyone who is uninsured into a low-cost health insurance plan, which, you know— what Since I've heard- enrollment is mandatory anyway. Well, so you'd get rid of the individual mandate, essentially, and then you'd make it an opt-out. So we have a lot of research that suggests auto-enroll really increases participation in a lot of programs. Like if you auto-enroll your workers into a 401k, you're going to see a lot fewer people taking that proactive step to um, opt out of it. So the idea is that, you know, we get rid of the individual mandate and we replace it with this auto-enroll feature where, yes, people could opt out if they want, but most people will end up sticking with it. And it's an idea that's gotten much more traction on the Republican side than I would have expected. I would have thought, and I was wrong, that conservatives would look at this policy and say, well, what role does the government have, like, signing people up for a health insurance plan they never wanted? And there really isn't that reaction. As long as there is an opt-out clause, Republicans seem to have gotten on board. And the type of insurance people would be enrolled into is, um, you know, kind of the products that I think a lot of conservatives believe will make the healthcare system work better. These kind of high deductible, low premium products, which, you know, are not going to offer very robust coverage. But the idea, you know, I talked to Lonnie Chen, who previously advised um, Governor Romney um, during his campaign, and his argument was, well, you know, we're going to protect people from financial ruin. Like, that is the goal of this. We're, we're not going to get them. How high deductible are we talking so about? So this is, like, the great question. So these are the two big questions about auto-enrollment that are kind of out there. One, I think, is more valid than the other. The one is, like, how the hell do you do this? Like, we don't have a national registry of uninsured people. Like, we don't have, like, when you auto-enroll everyone in your company onto 401k, you know who works for you. Or when you auto-enroll people onto Medicaid, you have information on income that tells you who's eligible. We do not have, like, a database of uninsured people. So there's this big logistical obstacle. I, you know, I don't think that's a reason to write off the plan. Like, there are many things that are difficult to do. It is hard to create income-based tax credits, but Obamacare did that. But, you know, the question you raise, Ezra, I think that is, like, the key question and something I talked to John Gruber about. You know, 
what is the point of enrolling people in health insurance if it has like, you know, if someone's earning $30,000 and they're enrolled into a plan with like a $15,000 deductible, like at the end of the day, what are we giving them? Are we just giving like free premium money to health insurance companies? I am old enough to remember when Donald Trump promised that any plan he signed would lower deductibles for people. Oh, yeah. Uh, I really suggest people read Sarah's piece on auto enrollment, which we will link to in the in the show notes here. But I am worried auto enrollment is a, a, a distraction of sorts that – the the almost the only thing that matters here, whether using auto enrollment or an individual mandate, is are the subsidies enough to give people health insurance that actually does what we want health insurance to do? Right now, I've not seen any evidence that Senate Republicans are, are moving towards having that. But I worry a little bit that this auto enrollment thing, it is a more serious policy, right? It is a way – I actually believe that Obama endorsed it in 2008 amidst when he was against an individual mandate. I believe that his campaign mm-hmm. – expressed openness or either yeah. or possibly and there was some auto enroll stuff on the employer side in obamacare so it's yep. an idea that like liberals are open it's to. a perfectly real policy idea the question is as it just continues to be in health insurance are you buying people something worth having right and it, it just if you auto enroll people into garbage it's just a way of funneling cash to private insurers. Like it's a stupid thing to do. It costs a bunch of money. People still go bankrupt. It breaks every promise Republicans made to their base. It's not what people want. And but then you're saying, well, we've still got all these people covered in these things. That, like that's not good. And I will say one thing about the history, like that kind of speaks to that. So the first time this shows up in the debate is in this plan that um, Senator Bill Cassidy publishes a few years ago. One thing that's notable about his plan is it does not repeal the Obamacare taxes. Like it keeps those in place. It keeps the funding source. It does not save any money, but it basically changes right. who's getting money. And, you know, when I talked to Lonnie about this, he was very clear, like this auto enroll scheme, it would not work with the house tax credits. They are too small. You cannot buy people real insurance. Like you have to bump up the tax credits. But I, I think so you're seeing like this grows out of a plan that has a lot more revenue behind it. And I think there's like a very real question. Is it a workable idea if you want to try and like bring this idea into a plan with a lot fewer revenue sources? It, it's also I mean, I think you see in this whole debate, right? There's something like fundamentally dumb about the structure of the existing Affordable Care Act that is just being re-replicated here, right? Like, if the premise of your system is that you are going to get everybody into uh, privately provided health insurance and that you are going to minimize the taxpayer cost of that by forcing uh, middle-class people to cough up premiums rather than payroll taxes, you have to make people buy the insurance, right? Like there was this whole debate, like Obama in the campaign, like he didn't want to have an individual mandate because it was unpopular. And then when Democrats were putting this forward, Republicans were like, oh, this individual mandate, it's unpopular. So then they like, I mean, we've talked about this before, but they watered down the individual mandate to the point where like, it is not in fact mandatory and lots of people don't sign up. And Ever since implementation began, we've had TV ads to try to get people to sign up. We've had outside sponsored groups doing recruiting to try to get people to sign up. When Trump win, we had a controversy about them maybe canceling the ads. We have 
blogs that track ACA signups. And we regard that as like a scorecard, like this is working, this is not working. Now we have a Republican idea. It's like, it's very possible that like a stupid, poorly implemented auto-enroll scheme will work better than a poorly implemented mandate scheme. But like, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, if the idea is to make everybody sign up so that the average premiums will be lower, like you have to make everybody sign up, you know, and like, sure, if one guy doesn't sign up, like, that's fine. But you have to make a, like a good faith effort at it. And then you get to the point where that seems shitty to people, like you're going to go to jail for not buying a private company's health insurance. So then, you know, the whole string unravels, like we could, let people sign up for a public option whose payment rates were linked to Medicare. We could call it Medicare. We could automatically enroll you in Medicare. <laughs> if you didn't like Medicare, you could opt out of it in favor of a private plan, which we could call Medicare Advantage. And, like, we have that. It, it works for people who are over 65. It could work for people who are 45. You know, and then – I become frustrated. But what are you getting at? Because you have this, <laughs> you have this growing uh, Bernie Sanders wing that is like, what we need to do is tomorrow cancel every health insurance program in America and enroll everybody in a thing we're going to call Medicare for all. But instead of having the actual structure of actual Medicare, it's also going to have comprehensive dental benefits and no premiums and like all these other things, and it'll cost eleventy trillion dollars. <laughs> um, but like, there's an actual. You could work it out, you know, like there, there, you could create an exchange so that people who get health insurance through their employers, like, don't have disruption. You could, as Ron Wyden's old bill had, then you open the exchanges up to employers, like after three years or, or something like that. Like, you could maintain, like, what liberals, I think, correctly see as like a good way to provide health insurance to people and then take seriously the practical challenges of creating a, a path to that that doesn't wreck everybody's lives. Um, but instead, we're like spinning our wheels around how to make this like universal sign up thing work when it like it doesn't work. So there was a, a quote that came out yesterday from Majority Leader, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. And he was asked, was he going to try to work with any Democrats on the health care plan? And he said, no, I have no interest in working with people who don't want to solve the problem. And as is often true, I, I think Mitch McConnell's tends to be unusually weirdly honest about things. And, and it speaks to what you're saying here, Matt. Republicans have not been very upfront about how they define the problem. But clearly, the problem is not what they have said the problem is, right. which is not enough people have health insurance and the people who do have it have overly high deductibles and are not getting enough value for their money. The problem is some combination of they want to repeal the taxes in Obamacare. They don't like Obamacare. They don't think the government should be paying that much for poor people's health insurance. I mean, there's like a whole set of things they're trying it to work decreases out. Decreases labor force participation. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't. I really, I really don't buy this particular argument, given other things going on in their in their proposals. Um, if, if you really wanted to front load the question of labor force participation in your political agenda, you would not start here, just like flatly. Um, that said, to your point, uh, one thing I think is worth noting is that an individual mandate and auto enrollment are actually two 
you could say great or not that great tastes that go great together. There's actually no reason you wouldn't combine them. It would help the individual mandate in Obamacare right now if you created an auto-enrollment dimension to the plan. In fact, I think if you had elected Hillary Clinton and she had come out with a package of technocratic fixes, you would have seen things like somewhat more subsidies, auto-enrollment, like that would have been on the table. So I just, I want to note, because one thing I think really does happen here is that Republicans used to make the same argument they're making around auto-enrollment for the individual mandate. And they're making that same argument up until roughly June, July of 2009. And then in August of 2009, you had the Tea Party anti-Obamacare protests begin. Republicans, all the Republicans who at that point supported individual mandates, abandoned individual mandates, and now kind of searching for some other policy that could do some version of what an individual mandate does, they're coming around to auto-enrollment. But these are not even replacements for each other. You would ideally put these things together to try to increase the participation of the young and healthy in the system. I think the struggle of putting them together, though, kind of goes back to your earlier point, is it's just really hard to come up with like a robust health plan that fits in what the government is going to pay. So even at like the lowest income levels, like let's say you earn 150% of the poverty line, which is probably around like $20,000 or so, you're still expected to, you're still expected to contribute something like pay, I don't know, like $30, $40 a month for your premium. And I think most, you know, legislators would say we're not going to, we're not at the point where we are going to auto enroll people into a plan that costs them money. Like in Switzerland, they're super happy to do that. They're saying like, we'll garnish your wages if you don't want to pay it. Like you are being signed up and like that is how this is going to work. Can't you go to jail in Switzerland eventually? I believe I've been can. told this, but I don't know if it's – Uwe Reinhardt has told me this fact. I mean if you I, don't pay your taxes in the United States, you will go to jail eventually. And, I think. Yes. Otherwise well, I think they, they, they are very it's aggressive on trying fact. to uh, – yes. I know they can garnish your wages. Like that is the first step. Um, you know, I don't know what they do if you're unemployed. But it does not seem like we are at the place where, like, we are going to enforce such a mandate at this point. Um, and then the question is, like, are we willing to bump up – are there two things? Are we willing to bump up the funding where we don't even ask people to pay? We just, like, enroll them into a plan? Or are we okay with people having, like, less robust health insurance? And I think that's where you see kind of the political divide where you'd see if this was a Clinton administration, like, well, let's just bump up the funding for some people. But if you look at kind of where the conservatives are going, where Senate Republicans are going, it's more of like, it's okay if it's a plan that has like, you know, 50% actuarial value, meaning that it only covers on average half of the um, enrollees costs. And I'm, that's where I'm really curious to see this develop. My understanding is that like the Senate, you know, and some other folks are looking to get some kind of estimates on this on like, how much you need to actually pay for an insurance plan that you would consider health insurance. Um, And I think it's going to turn out to be very expensive and it's going to sink the auto-enroll idea Um, because I do think like the really compelling argument against this and, and, you know, I think this is a place where someone like Lonnie would agree with me. Like if you have an insurance plan that covers 20% of the cost, like what is the point of that? I don't know where they draw the line though. Like what is real health insurance and what is like just not enough coverage to to consider an think, actual plan? Think about how the Medicaid cliff is going to like look in this context, right? You're like just below the poverty line. You're like you're working hard. You're taking care of your kids. And it's like, well, OK, at least like if somebody gets sick, like I can go see the doctor. Then next year, like you get a 75 cent an hour raise. You're like, OK, this is good. We're going to like – 
you know, get some more food. Um, and you get sick and you go see the doctor and it's like, Oh, now you need to pay me hundreds of dollars. And you're like, well, wait, why? And it's like, well, you know, cause you're off your Medicaid and you're like, well, but I thought I was auto enrolled in this great new, uh, Trump care plan. And it's like, no, it doesn't actually cover any medical care unless, you know, your like limbs are chopped off. Like it, it would be terrible. Like it's a, it's a very like, Auto-enrollment is a sound technical strategy for increasing signups, right? Like, particularly in the context of a weak individual mandate, a weak individual mandate plus auto-enrollment would be very, very powerful, right? Like, if you had to affirmatively opt out, most people just wouldn't because people are lazy. And then especially if the opt out was like, are you sure you want to opt out of this health insurance? Because you're going to have to pay us like $400 right now to lose your health insurance. You're going to be like, like that sounds like a bad deal. Cause like it is in fact a bad deal. You would increase participation. Premiums could be lower, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, there's actually like an interesting technical way of doing this that um, Stan Dorn at Urban Institute talked to me about. He suggested like, why not when we ask people they have insurance, like why not have a follow-up question that says, so you ask that say on your taxes, did you have insurance? And you say, no, do you have insurance now? And you say, no, and then actually give them a way to sign up for insurance right. or enroll them at that point. Like, actually, like, seems like a very feasible way to do some version of auto right. But then in this Senate Republican auto enroll, there's like a bait and switch where, like, instead of the auto enroll being a um, technical correction to increase ACA signups, it's like also instead of enrolling you in one of these plans that people are already kind of dissatisfied with their quality of, they're going to auto enroll you in a way worse plan. And like, that doesn't. Again, as Ezra was saying, it's like, what is the problem that you are defining as? Because from a Barack Obama's third term perspective, the problem is you didn't succeed in getting as many people to sign up as you thought you would. So you're going to. And the health insurance wasn't as as affordable. Right. So you're going to try to do a bunch of different things to boost signups. But Republicans are defining the problem as largely consisting of the government is spending too much money. And there's like no way to make this work. It's like, it's like two conversations that are happening in parallel. But when you put them together, like, why would you automatically enroll people in an insurance plan that they're going to find very dissatisfactory? And Senate Republicans, I worry. I, what my concern at the base of this is, is that the problem they are trying to solve is how do you get CBO to stop saying that 24 million people are losing their health insurance without actually paying for those people to have usable health insurance? CBO has said that there is some level beneath which they will not count what you give people as health insurance, but they have been in a way I think is a little bit weird, super vague about yes. what that means. So nobody knows what the line is. But um Look, Presumably, uh, Senate Republicans are learning yes. what the line is as they have those. You know, but there, there are versions of this where it's like, okay, it is a very different world of what you're saying is everybody's going to get auto-enrolled into a catastrophic plan that covers some preventative and is a $5,000 deductible. That's still a lot of money for a poor family. But within reasonable levels of health expense, it does protect you from catastrophe. 15 or 20, and yeah. you're totally out of out of the ballgame. And so I just when we when we define the problem – I think that the problem is the CBO score. Right. Not. But the auto enroll, it's just worth saying the auto enroll isn't doing the work there, right? I mean, regardless of the merits, if you got from the CBO exactly how watered down you can make the insurance and they'll still call it insurance and you just 
change the regulations to like hit that CBO waterline, right? If you do that, then premiums will fall since the mandate is still in place. Like more people will sign up for this new cheaper, even though worse insurance, um, which will spread the risk pool better. I mean, you you will get a better CBO score if you just focus on whatever is that CBO baseline. Um, but the auto enroll is like neither necessary nor sufficient for that. It's just then if you've also Republicans don't think the mandate is bad, but they have campaigned against it enough that they are now determined to get rid of it. So they now need to come up with something that will have all the same consequences as the mandate, but that they can somehow say they repealed it and they would be, I mean, they will look like idiots if they just admit that they're going to keep this thing. Um, but look, they already look like idiots. I mean, Mexico is not going to pay for a border wall. There's like a million ridiculous things that were said on the campaign trail that they're not going to do. Um, if they're going to fundamentally violate the premise to lower people's deductibles, they like might as well break their other promises rather than come up with like a cockamamie new thing that they're going to have to create some new master database for where like actually the only point of this all is to like let them say they scrapped the mandate. Cause like who cares? You know, they, they're breaking promises left and right. Right. They should try to come up with something that works. Before I, I was a, a podcaster, I had my own blog, and it, it was really hard back in the day to, to make your own website. And Squarespace is a company that's really dedicated to, to changing all that. Um, with, with Squarespace, you get to use beautiful, award-winning designer templates with, with an all-in-one platform. There's nothing you need to install or patch or upgrade, and, and it's super dead simple to use. You, you can drag, you can drop. What you see is what you get. It, it's not at all like making websites in the old days. Uh, it's something really anybody can do from the comfort of their own home. They provide endless support for you. Uh, and so that's why Squarespace is used by a huge range of people, creative professionals and, and small businesses, musicians, designers, artists, restaurants, and more. I mean, if you would like to have a website, but you don't want to spend a ton of money or put a ton of time into it, uh, Squarespace is the place to go. Uh, their slogan right now is make your next move with Squarespace. It's because almost any line of work, any line of business you're in, having a great website is going to help you do that. And Squarespace is really uh, one of the best ways to make that happen. If you go at checkout and use promo code WEEDS at squarespace.com, you get 10% off on your purchase. Uh, that's a great initial deal. Uh, squarespace.com, make your next move, make your next website, use Squarespace. All right. Let's talk white about a white paper. paper. For my birthday on May 18th, 2017, uh, Chiang Tai Hsia. How old are you? I don't know. I am 36. Happy um, birthday, Matt. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I don't really know how to say his name. Um, but he's uh, – and Enrico Moretti, uh, two superstars of zoning-related economics papers. They came together to collaborate on a, on a master paper. So the new pornographers of zoning-related economics papers. Something like that. I, I think they're more as a, a broken social scene in terms of <laughs> Canadian supergroups. Um, but they, uh, they, they, they collaborated on a paper to look at – Overall, what has been the economic impact of the fact that high-wage cities like New York, San Francisco Bay Area, Boston tend to also be high-housing cost cities? And so they are attempting to model um, what if 
it was possible for people to sort of move in unlimited numbers into these high-wage cities because they would just build more and more houses. Um, and they find that the, the impact on, on GDP growth is a extremely large. Using a spatial equilibrium model and data from 220 metropolitan areas, we find that these constraints in housing lowered aggregate U.S. growth by more than 50% from 1964 to 2009. All right. Can I jump in here? <laughs> yeah. So recognizing that I understood the – Seven percent of this paper. There's a lot of math. There's a I lot of math. With this I did. Paper, I to be honest, that is a very big number. Yes, like it's a, it is to me, and actually, like an implausibly big number. And it wasn't a hundred percent because I was having trouble with the math. It is a little bit hard for me to understand what the underlying modeling assumptions were. Like, does everybody move in a way that is not really true to the degree to which people even want to move places? Because you know, folks are not. They do not just go wherever the the incomes are highest. Uh, like what what accounts for that? I did not get in in plain English in that paper a good accounting of how that could be so high. When really they're only looking at like it looked to me like they were not looking at that much. Uh, the, a couple cities seem to me to be doing a lot of the work, at least in the way they narrativize their own paper. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they focus very heavily on on just a, just a handful of, of high cost cities, uh, but. You know, the, the way it works, I think there's like two big mechanisms. Actually, no, wait, there's four, four big mechanisms. Okay. So one is you have more people in the higher wage cities and they are earning higher wages. The other is that housing costs are lower in what are currently the most expensive cities so that the the real inflation adjusted gdp would just be much higher if a house on the coasts cost what a house in texas cost the real incomes of all coastal people would be much much higher but then they're also positing that there are more of those people so the real incomes get higher than that housing costs are also lower in the rest of the country though because there's less demand for housing. So the real incomes for everybody are going up due to their lower housing costs. Then last, there's like a better – in terms of who remains in what right now are the low-wage economies, they are positing that there would be sort of a better match and a higher earnings potential there, right? So that – you know, Orlando, Florida, right, is not like the center of high-tech innovation in the United States, but it is a place that has its own distinctive industries in terms of tourism and, and things like that. And there's more demand for those kind of services because more people are wealthier elsewhere. And there are still some people there who are able to take sort of maximum advantage of what is it that Orlando has, right? What is it that Billings, Montana has that it's good at? What is it that Kenosha, Wisconsin, where they make a lot of uh, home appliances, right? So everybody is left better matched. Many people are left in higher wage, general kinds of areas. Housing costs for everybody are lower. And there is a, a lot more economic growth. Now, I should say, I've seen other efforts to quantify this that come up with numbers that are big, but not nearly as big. So it'll be like a trillion dollars more of, of GDP maybe could be added instead of this is more like maybe two uh, trillion. Um, and also, obviously, people don't really know, right? I mean, a lot, we're talking going back to 1964, um, a lot about the United States would look different if you'd had uncontrolled housing growth in expensive coastal cities over the past 50 years in ways that I think are 
you know, you're, you're not going to, they have a lot of Greek letters, but like, you're, you're not going to capture what would like actually, actually be different if we'd see in uh, massive depopulation of Ohio, if San Francisco, San Jose was one of the biggest cities in the world, if the huge migration to, uh, you know, Nevada just like hadn't taken place, like everything would be really different. Well, so one question, this is a really basic question I had reading this very math heavy paper, and it might stretch into other research on the topic, too. But how much of this is a story about policy versus like, geographic constraints that like cities, obviously, like there is like a set amount of space in any city. And I'm curious, something that like, I had a little trouble working through in this paper was like, how much of this is like, policy decisions and like like how much of the constraints are like a story about policy it's really almost all policy um it is true obviously that there's only so much space in particular areas but the cost of building high-rise buildings is really not even close to accounting for the the higher price of dwellings in these places. Ed Glazer and uh, a guy, Joseph Giorco, I think is his name. Um, they show that it's something like 70 to 80 percent of the, the housing cost premium in expensive cities is purely permitting um, and nothing to do with the um, actual land constraints or or constraints on, on the building design. And and you can see that by thinking about, you know, some other kinds of of places. But if you, you just do a, a straight up comparison, right? So the city of San Francisco has a population density that is a little bit lower than the borough of Queens in New York. Um, it's about half of Brooklyn. Um, we obviously know you could build a sort of small water surrounded but highly valuable area up to a Manhattan type density, right? There's nothing stopping San Francisco from doing that. And please don't email me about earthquakes, um, as people always do. Tokyo is on fault lines, very tall buildings. It's totally fine. It's in fact better to build uh, big structures with advanced engineers than shitty old row houses. Um, so, you know, it's policy. Uh, what's interesting is that it's local policy, right? People make these decisions in sort of town meetings, zoning boards, and they're saying, basically, what do we want our community to be like? And they are, you know, deciding different things. But in general, they are deciding for less growth than a free market would provide. And what this paper is saying, what this whole literature is saying is that there are national implications of these decisions, right? I mean, people say, okay, we want Palo Alto to be basically a suburban kind of place. And that's, that's like how we like it. That is our right as Americans to choose. If you want to live in a different kind of place than that, just move someplace else. Um, but there's big implications for the national economy. And one of the things that that bleeds into, or I think it bleeds into is that what we're basically saying is that the national economy is losing out. So these local areas can stay the way they want to stay. And to the extent that what the authors here are positing is like a really an overriding national interest. I mean, if you take their estimate seriously, a 50% increase in GDP, like you would do anything to get that. Like that, that is huge. And if you take it seriously, what are you beginning to talk about? I mean, beginning to think a bit about something like what the federal government did to move the drinking age up to age 21. Like you don't get highway funding unless you loosen your zoning rules. Like what are the national levers because the 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 key move here is to say that the country has this huge interest in pulling these levers so like what would they be yeah, i mean i think you would say carrot and stick right i mean you would say that there are a certain number of areas of 
you know, national economic interest and significance, and that we are going to provide a large pot of money for those places to build transportation infrastructure, to, you know, embrace a large amount of population growth. Um, but if they don't take that money and change their zoning, they're going to lose uh, many other things. Another thing you could do that is very um, un-American in its spirit, uh, but might in some ways make everybody happier, would be to actually badger the companies and get them to go someplace else. Um, you know, for good reasons, like Google and Facebook and Apple all want to be where the center of the high-tech industry is in the United States. But if you could imagine President Trump, who doesn't care about norms and likes to yell at people, like getting the CEOs of those three companies and of two big venture capital companies, like all in a room and saying, you know, here's a big map, like you tell me where your companies are all going to go. And then we will have a high tech cluster in, you know, Phoenix or or wherever else. Um, that's not like an optimal, optimal outcome, but it, it would be a lot better than the current outcome. And I don't know, you know, you can ask like, well, could the government like really make that happen? Probably not. On the other hand, could you do it if you really wanted to? Could you scare California politicians who right now, you know, Bay Area people are, they've become very like skeptical of tech, you know, it's like, well, we don't like these buses and these gentrifiers faced with the prospect of like, okay, the golden goose is going to say like, yeah, you guys hate us so much. We're going someplace else. Um, would they have a different viewpoint suddenly that like, no, actually being center of, of many of the world's leading companies is is good. Uh, New York, though, which is also a, a big part of this, um, New York's housing supply is less tight than the Bay Area, but it's also a much bigger city. So it, it counts for a lot. And New York is not nearly as dominated by a handful of players or even by one industry. Uh, finance is obviously the biggest thing happening in New York, but a number of other industries, uh, journalism, for example, are concentrated there. So I think it would be a huge, harder, huge profit driver in New York. Oh, it's huge. Everyone, everyone who's anywhere. Are there um, international examples of the idea you're talking about? Because, you know, we talked about like Switzerland earlier and they're fine like garnishing your wages for not having health insurance and possibly throwing you in jail but like other other countries where they're more comfortable with that kind of government intervention where you see them like oh, with dispersal yeah i mean so denmark tried a version of dispersal with their government agencies i think it's mostly been seen as a failure uh, japan did the other thing they very much nationalized land use type restrictions. So Tokyo keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, even though the population of Japan is actually falling. Um, and it works. Tokyo, if you compare Tokyo to London, New York, Paris, other like global cities, it's way, way, way cheaper, uh, because they, they keep building housing. They also have, I mean, not to knock this down. They also like legendarily have the world's like most advanced rail transportation network in Tokyo. So you can get places from very, very far away. Um, you might also look at Europe, though, as not as a series of countries, but as a continent-wide economy, and see that because of its division into different countries, it itself is a kind of dispersed version of America, right? So that, like... London is a big city with a lot of companies in it, but so is Paris, so is the sort of Rhine-Ruhr area in, in Germany, so is Milan in Italy, that the fact that these are considered different countries, they have lots and lots of sort of little hub clusters. It would be interesting 
it would be a big crisis for Europe, right? If all language and cultural distinctions vanished and like every major, I shouldn't say every, but if a hugely disproportionate share of like big globally successful European companies started clustering in just like three or four different cities rather than a couple dozen national capitals, like they would have a big problem on their hands. All right. That's that's what we got. Sweets. Okay. Thanks for listening. Uh, we are all three of us are going to be back on Friday. Let's not make promises. I mean, anything I'm coming can back. There's a CBO score. There's going to be Sarah gonna, will be here. Yeah, you'll, I think I, I want to be, be here. I want to okay. be here. There's going to be a CBO score. There's going to be a special election result. Um, maybe Trump will get back on Twitter uh, once he's back in the United States. Did you see that thing where his aides said they were planning flights so that he couldn't be on Twitter? Yeah, like, that is what his aides think of him. I don't under- actually understand that. Why don't they have Wi-Fi in Air Force One if they have it on like regular planes? Maybe we'll answer that question next Friday. time. Yeah. <laughs> Friday, a deep dive into airplane mechanics. Um, I'm uh, going to put in a quick plug on the Ezra Klein show this week. We got Yasha Monk, who is really fascinating guys at the America Foundation, lecture at Harvard. He's been doing a lot of research on democratic deconsolidation, the ways in which this sort of intellectual and ideological consensus around democracy and liberal pluralistic ideas is breaking down. Turns out a lot more people in America now say they're okay with a military coup than uh, than used to, and say they it's maybe not that important to live in a democracy. I've got him. Before that, Brian Stevenson from the Equal Justice Initiative. Those are both good interviews that I think Weed's listeners will like. So check that out on the Ezra Klein Show. All right. And if you you know want to discuss what you are thinking about all of these different episodes, you can always come join our Weed's Facebook group, Growing by the Day. It is actually a lovely corner of the internet where people are having really good conversations. One of the few. About, yes, it is, it is a rare place where you can have a good substantive conversation about policy that Matt and Ezra and I are jumping into. And if you um, go onto Facebook and search Weeds, you will find some marijuana-related groups, which you will also find it's also our Facebook Facebook.com such groups slash the weeds, I think. 5,000. Yes. yes. Thanks to our Facebook group. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks to Ezra and Sarah. Thanks to our producer, Bert Pinkerton. We'll see you in a couple days.